Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these early earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Hi, this is Charlie Peacock. Welcome to the True Tunes podcast. I'm John J. Thompson. Welcome to episode one of the True Tunes podcast. To kick off this shindig, I thought it only appropriate to start with one of the artists who really had a profound influence on me as a teenager, whose music and overall ethic inspired me to dig deep as an artist, a thinker, and as a person of faith, not to settle for canned answers and cliches. I'm talking about multiple award-winning artists, songwriter, producer, and now visual artist, Charlie Peacock. Charlie took time to talk to me when I was having a bit of a crisis during the Cornerstone Festival in 1989. I'll tell you that story in a little bit. Now, 30 years later, I sit down with him once again. Later in our True Tunes jukebox feature, we will revisit Charlie's debut 1984 album, Lie Down in the Grass, for side A, and the latest Rock on Tours album, Help Me Stranger, on side B. Then I'll spend some time on my trusty soapbox reflecting on that advice Charlie gave me all those years ago. I was almost 19 years old, and my plan was coming together perfectly until it kind of blew up in my face. It was early summer, 1989, and I was at the Cornerstone Festival on the Lake County Fairgrounds near Chicago. I had convinced the festival organizers to allow me to launch True Tunes as their official music store. Unlike previous Christian bookstore vendors who sold music and then paid a commission to the festival, I offered to keep a mere 10% of the sales. I pledged to give the rest of the profits to the festival. It was a lot of work for a small amount of money, but I believed there was no better way to launch True Tunes, and I was right. I also brought my band, we were then called Vague, believe it or not, and with me was my friend Randy Kirkman with his van full of PA gear. And at the end of the first day, I met with the festival director and I told him what the music sales had been, and it was more than the fest had ever made over the course of the whole event. He was thrilled. Then I asked if we could set up our PA over in front of the swine barn at the end of the blacktop where we had found a couple of outlets and just play a sort of impromptu set the next day. He readily agreed. We did, and it was fun. We were okay. I think we managed to gather a couple hundred people to see us. Randy's band, Mission of Mercy, played too. They were fantastic. Another band saw what we did and asked if they could do the same thing the next day. They worked out some kind of deal with Randy to use his PA, and the next day that band, called The Throws, made their Cornerstone debut and got a record deal. But my music, the thing I was fully convinced was going to be my main calling in this life, was absolutely eclipsed by what I had done with True Tunes. In four days, with a music store and a magazine, True Tunes became a national voice for this small but significant community, and I was the linchpin behind it all. Instead of feeling excited about that, though, I was worried. I knew that if everyone first knew me as the True Tunes guy, they would never take me seriously as an artist. And for the most part, that has proven to be true. I felt myself having a sort of existential crisis right there at the Lake County Fairgrounds. What had I done? I was standing in the middle of our massive store, surrounded by customers, when one of my favorite artists came up to congratulate me on all the success. And I wasn't sure what to say. I'm kind of freaking out is what I did say though. Could I talk to you? I think I really messed up here, I said, gesturing to a thriving booth full of thrilled looking music fans. Charlie Peacock very graciously invited me to visit with him that night at the hotel after his set. That set, a midnight show with his then brand new acoustic trio, 
turned out to be one of the most breathtaking concerts I have ever seen. It still ranks as one of my all-time favorite live music experiences. I could have a faith, a faith to move a mountain, but without love, I'd be worth nothing. I could give all my money away, but without love, I would gain nothing. I know that you're the main connection, you could put me on the track. By the time Charlie and I sat down to talk, it was about 4 a.m. The words he shared with me, simple as they were, have helped to shape my journey of the past 30 years. In the decades since he first appeared on the scene, Charlie Peacock has thrilled audiences as an artist, a songwriter, and as a producer and cultivator of other artists' music. He has written books, fostered community, taught, and recently unveiled a new chapter as a visual artist. He has received multiple Grammy and Dove Awards, Gold Albums, and a number of other songwriting and production accolades. But above everything else, in my book anyway, is the standard of artistic, theological, and soulful excellence he has set for the rest of us to live up to. Whether you're a fan of his music, or of the many amazing artists he has nurtured and produced, artists like Switchfoot, Sarah Mason, Civil Wars, and Ruby Amanfu, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I visited Charlie at his home in Nashville shortly after the launch of his new co-blog, The Writer, The Husband, a collaboration with his wife, Andy Ashworth, and the launch of his brand new visual art collection, Only in Nashville, which he creates under his given name, Charles Ashworth. We had a lot to talk about. I've had to edit a little bit for time, but here we go. and I hope that we're able to do as we kind of try to regather this thing is that 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 sense of the community that that happened and I always felt when when your shows happened at Cornerstone those were some of the real special memories I had of you were able to capture and foster a sense of something bigger was going on than just the music that was happening there were I don't know how much of that was just just happened or how much of that you choreographed or designed, um, but it definitely was something that we could not miss. We could not miss a Charlie Peacock show because something happened that went beyond the music. Did you sense that on stage or was that something that I just in my youthful... <laughs> no, I, I definitely sensed that. I mean, I think all of us did, uh, especially during that time. But I think we were predisposed to um, come to music as believers in Jesus, but we were also believers in the transcendent effect of music. And so we were predisposed to have an expectation about the communal gathering and take the promises of the scripture in terms of, of the Lord being present with you. I mean, I took that very seriously, and I, I that was just something I, I banked on, you know, that I was never going out alone, and that you never go one-on-one -on -one with anyone, or you never go one-on-one -on -one with an audience, you know. It's, it's always uh, what God is, has prepared in advance for you to uh, to enjoy and to be, be part of. And then culturally, myself and many people that I that I performed with back then, we were predisposed um, to have the evening be surprising because communities that we came out of, that's the way we played music. 
We played music to be surprised by it. We didn't rehearse it until it was, you know, every note that we would repeat the same note. There was always an element of improvisation and we came out of um, traditions that were performance improvisational traditions. Even if you go back to um, uh, Coltrane and you think about how he would say that every night he goes out and he just prays through his horn um, and seeking transcendence. And I don't think that we were that Eastern in our thinking. It was just more that we were used to this communal thing by playing in clubs and knowing the people that we were playing for. They were our friends, you know. But also, artistically, we never would have been satisfied if it hadn't have been that way. Looking back, it seems that for a lot of the industry, Christian music was marketed as a safe alternative to real music. Like it was, you, you don't want your kid listening to this dangerous kind of rock music or pop music. So buy this safe version. And it was mm -hmm. almost like a good housekeeping seal of approval or a, a brand that you could just trust this brand and we'll do the discerning for you. And that never struck me as the agenda or impetus behind your work or many of your friends' work. And I think that's probably what drew me to your stuff from the beginning was this was not an alternative to anything no, real. This no. was genuine this music. This was exactly, made. the music that we made was exactly the music we wanted to make. There was, we didn't make it to fulfill anyone's agenda or to sell anything. Most of us that, that I knew who were younger Christians, we, we weren't even really aware of any kind of sales or economic infrastructure that was out there. We were sh kind of sheltered from that. And, and also, I mean, we, didn't, we never, since the time that I've been a Christian, I, I don't think you can find anywhere in print or have ever heard me refer to myself as a Christian musician. Right. It just doesn't exist. Um, I've never done it. Um, there might be contexts that I might say that in, in, under the right circumstances with the right people, um, if that was exactly what I meant to communicate, and they would understand it exactly in the way <laughs> right, I was communicating right. it. But um, I quickly found out that, that there was a genre of uh, popular music called Christian music, and. Uh, Christian contemporary and contemporary Christian. Sometimes people would reverse those two, and uh, and I just knew that that's not what I'm doing. You know, it was, it's always been a great frustration of mine to have people say that. Oh, you know, when you were doing contemporary Christian music or something, it's like, no, I've only done <laughs> the music that I've done. That's it. That's that's all I've done. Uh, but I also understand, you know, I mean, my, my friend Dan Russell coined the phrase, he says, you are where you are distributed. And uh, I think some of us just naively let people distribute our music without realizing that uh, Dan's prophetic voice was, was true, that, um, that there was a, a group of, of, of believers who well-intended, wanted to organize the music of the church, and specifically wanted to uh, create music for uh, young Christians. Uh, and like you said, kind of um, a sound-alike culture, a subculture, so that people would, uh, you know, if you like the Beatles, well then you'll, you should listen to Phil Kagey, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and there would draw some comparison, you know, uh, like that. And it, very unfair to the artists and, and but it, but really all it was is it's just a sales technique. That's right. all it is. It's, and, and I think for many of us who now reflecting back on it, you know, uh, people have, have written and, and talked a lot about having pioneered during that time. And we didn't have, that wasn't anything that anybody I knew was trying to do. Right that we were just trying to uh, make the very best music we could make and 
And for me, even when I moved to Nashville um, to um, work with a, a lot of the uh, labels that self-identified as Christian record labels, I came to do work. You know, it was a job. You know, I was a husband and a father, and and um, I was living in Sacramento and having to go to Los Angeles to work most of the time. Uh, my management was in San Francisco, um, and I needed to work. And there were people in Nashville who said, "If you come to Nashville, you'll never stop working." You know, which was true. <laughs> I've, had, I've had to had to work on stopping working. You know, one of the main theses of the book I wrote about Christian music was that uh, that to create a genre of Christian music is like a you know a, a drop in of water in the in the ocean, you know, it's just too small. I mean, you can't hold the whole history of, of music that people of faith have made across the, the generations and centuries and, and, and globally even now. You know, it's just, it makes no sense to me. Right. And I think that's just the difference between um, uh, artists who are confident that they're called to something and that they're not sitting around worrying about whether they're going to sell something. They're far more worried about are they going to create something good enough that people will want. And that's just, that's always been my criteria. I mean, I have to be interested in it. It has to be something that, um, at least for me when I was creating my own music, and I had to believe that I was a part of making something that hadn't been heard before. I just, I, I have no other way to think about music than that. Right. Because no one else had done it, really done it before. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we were guinea pigs, so it was uh, a matter of not really understanding that uh, the inverse being that our mainstream pop music counterparts uh, were just starting to understand Christian music as well and they began to see oh we get it it's a market share it's a market share okay it's just like we have three percent classical you know 4.2 percent jazz and now we can have 3.6 percent Christian yes. or gospel music right. and maybe we'll start investing So my question is, for the young artists who are coming up post all that, what is your commentary for them? Going back to your comment that you said you never self-identified as a Christian artist. That was a tag that got put on you that you never really associated with yourself. How mm -hmm. can a young artist who has a particular spirituality that they're interested in trying to artfully weave into their work, both for the sake of the value of their work and for the sake of something that they, got, that they want to talk about, um, how can they think of themselves and present themselves without succumbing to the temptation to use their faith as a marketing ploy in this day and age right now? Well, I think it's a theological issue first and foremost. It's kind of like prayer in schools or the word evangelical. Do you need to legalize uh, or codify prayer in schools in order to pray in school? Absolutely not. Uh, do you need to call yourself an evangelical in order to understand that the evangel, the good news, is a central part of Jesus' mission? No, absolutely not. And, and I think so, I would just continue to carry that through to say, um, just do what you do, do what you're called to do. Um, the only, uh, again, the only reason that I can think of for a musical artist to say that they're a Christian artist is, is if they feel they're called to the church and the 
circumstances they find themselves in uh, of playing music for the church requires that they self-identify. Other than that, I can't think of any circumstances where it's necessary to self-identify. I I can think of a hundred circumstances where it's necessary to be and do, to think and to feel and to imagine and create as one who professes to follow Jesus. I can think of a bunch of stuff right. like that. <laughs> right. Right? But, and, and so inside of all of that is just tremendous freedom. Uh, there's tremendous freedom not because of a core value of artistic freedom. The, the first thing is that um, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less if you're found in Him and for Him. And that's the starting place. From there, that's a tremendous amount of freedom. You know, you start with that. Um, and I think I'm just really grateful that, that somehow in the midst of all the legalism and and crazy stuff that was around, uh, the uh, end time stuff that was around during when I was a very young Christian, that somehow just enough grace got snuck in there and stuck, you know, (laughs) that I I wasn't burdened by the notion that God wouldn't love me if I didn't say things in a certain way or uh, call things a certain thing, you know. Um, or do say the right things in order to get over with a group of people to to impress them that I was in their tribe. You know, I just was free from that. Uh, I'm very grateful that I was, but it was no, it wasn't a construction on my own. I mean, that, that's just that was just the grace that I was able to receive. some people that want to know ahead of time if their food is healthy, if their food is, you know, free of certain dyes and free of certain Mm -hmm. additives. But a lot of people, if you tell them right up front, this is health food, then it's almost like you're you're, you're predetermining a niche for your food. Right. And and you and I both know that the reason why... um, Christian music as an industry does that is because they do want to self-identify in order for those Christians who self-identify in that way to know um, this is how I purchase or listen or stream Christian music is because I'm getting the right kind of social cues um, uh, from the people that are creating it. And I think when you talk about you know, when you first met me or came to know me, I mean, it wasn't that that myself or others that were close to me weren't sending social cues because we were, and again, not by any clever strategy, but but we were we were sending some social cues, and they were mostly that that the other social cues that people were sending don't interest us. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. And and we find them unnecessary, yeah. and uh, we're we're on this other path. And if you, if that resonates with you, then come and see. So, when you think about young creatives that are coming up now, heading into this streaming-based economy where the whatever what the Christian music industry was is now essentially the worship industry. What do you say to that kid that comes to you and says, I I got all these ideas and I got all this skill, I I think, and I want to make music and I want to do something, but I'm freaked out (laughs) because I I feel like now I can do anything I want to, but will anybody find me? Will anybody listen? Well, I'd be very cautious. I would want to, to be able to share with them that that whatever the pursuit is, it's it's about dependence on God 
and trusting promises, God's promises to you, which requires you knowing what the promises are. Uh, so that is a discipleship issue. And, and do you know the word well enough to know what the promises are? They're what creates a proper confidence in why you can do what you do and why you can be confident in it. They're the guardrails that keep you from uh, creating a world in which you're responsible for everything, because that's a lie, you're not. I would definitely lean into the, to this old word of disciple, you know, of, of being a student of Jesus and a student of uh, the word that he took seriously, you know, and the revelation of his disciples and, and their story of his time with us on earth. Um, to take all of that really seriously and then to study with people or, or, or read um, and study through those who spend a lot of time trying to come to understand how the Word of God comes to bear upon everyday life. I can't even imagine venturing out into the world without that. Um, and, yeah, and, and I don't know this for sure, but people tell me that discipleship is the number one problem in the church. Uh, I, I don't know that, but, but that's just, I was met with a book publisher the other day, and I said, what do you want people to write about? What is the number one need that, that people tell you about the kind of books you should publish and hands down it's discipleship? That it's kind of a lost art of what are, what's the best information about the most important things so that, um, so that you can dream a dream and not go off course. And also just emphasize that, um, that you've got to be a student of life because, and a student of place and people and planet and uh, nature and the integration of all things. You know, big ideas mm -hmm. that if you're not, you won't be sustainable. What's sustainable are uh, ideas that live across the centuries. That's sustainable. It's not sustainable to, to come up with a great guitar riff or, you know, or to gain facility on an instrument uh, or to write 13 really good songs. You know, all those things can be good in and of themselves, but they're not, they're not the, the, what will sustain you. So it's like the idea that, that you can run a song up the charts, right, at, at terrestrial radio, or you could have a big streaming song, and then you could just vanish, right? And um, I've never seen what I do that way. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that I thought I wouldn't be legitimate unless I had hits, uh, pop hits, and so I had pop hits, and now I can... I consider myself to be legitimate, right? That's that's foolishness, but that's that's just the way I was wired when I when I was younger. But as I matured, I saw sustainability about the kind of directly linked to the kind of person I was becoming, um, and that I was growing musically uh, because that's all I did. You know, I was going to and. and uh, the way I thought about music required that I was always in an investigative mode. I was always in a mode of discovery. I was always in a mode of curiosity. So my work was never done, right? So that meant I would keep growing that way as well. But if, but if we were to like dissect my career and say, okay, you know, you, you got married at 18, You've been playing professionally since you were 14. You're 62 years old. You know, you've, I've done practically every job you could possibly have in music, right? Um, how did that happen? You know, and if I had to break it down and explain it to you, 
I would say it was so much more about the things that you can't even imagine than it was about the music. And it was it was so much about calling, um, about a supernatural equipping that had nothing to do with me. It's so much about um, wisdom that had nothing to do with me, uh, discernment that had nothing to do with me, all these things, graces, gifts, of which then, having been given them, then having the responsibility to grow them and to use them wisely. I think that also, if an artist pursues that grace in the way that they execute their work, I believe that they'll find it even even if it doesn't lead to massive success uh, on a commercial level, they'll find a way to bless a lot of people or a handful of people in a deep way. You yeah. know, and that that kind of grace can be deep without being wide. Yeah, and can, absolutely. And that you'll never regret it. And especially today, I mean, um, there's. I, I was just reading an article this morning. That, um, the widening gap. So in the same way that we have this massive gap between, you know, whatever it is, you know, 1% of the people have 90% of the wealth, or right? Well, we've created, the music industry is exactly the same, yeah. right? So there's a handful of these people that are, you know, are making all the money in the music business, and then there's everybody else. And to me, that's, that's just the all the more reason for uh, younger artists today to really put together for themselves a an ethos and a philosophy for why they do what they do and how it's going to be sustainable, what they're going to value, um, the power of community in their life, the, the fellowship, um, and... Um, who they do what they do for and why they do it, I mean, those are sustainable ideas that get you through the rough patches, you know, to, so that quality is good enough. You know, when you get to the end of it, it's like, wow, I'm so proud of what I made and I'm so pleased with it. It brought me so much pleasure to make that. And my friends, it's bringing them pleasure. and. And that's, that's enough, you know. Um, if you don't end up being paid extravagantly for it, um, you know what, get in line. <laughs> Most people aren't paid extravagantly for right. what they do. Right. Um, and again, I mean, some of my uh, uh, erroneous thinking, you know, as a young artist was is because I lived under that presumption. I mean, and maybe some of it is what drove me mm -hmm. to that because I presume that, right? I presume that music was a wealth-making mechanism, that music was a fame-making mechanism. Presume those things would happen as a matter of course because they happened to my heroes, right? You know, uh, but uh, you know, as I matured as a person, then I realized, well, that's that's folly. You know, but in some ways, though, once you get that seed in you, it's hard to get it out. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get it out. So the benefit I think that with the artists today is that there is a good chance that that most musical artists we know will never have a gold record, and that's okay. I mean, think of I mean here in in the town that we live in, we have a a vibrant musical middle class, don't we? I mean, we, we pro probably the, the most vibrant musical middle class in America is in Nashville, I would say, in middle and upper middle class, right? Where you, you know, you and I could get out our phone book, you know, and start right. calling people that no one has ever heard of and they're doing quite well and right. and they play a role in the music business and, and they have for 
a long time and they have a sustainable career, right. you know, but, but they're not Beyonce or Jay-Z, right. you know. Um, and I think young people need to know that, that that's okay. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. For side A of the jukebox this time around, we're going back to 1984 for Charlie Peacock's debut, Lie Down in the Grass. Trust me when I tell you that this LP, from the opening title track to the final fade out on Who Is Not Afraid, was like nothing that had come before it in any genre or market. By the time this record came out, Charlie Peacock was already a seasoned professional. He had been working with A-list artists around the San Francisco area and dialing in his own unique R&B-inflected sound. He had released some music locally and regionally, though most of it had not been properly distributed. After coming to Faith and finding a group of Christians in Sacramento that valued music deeply, Chuck had a vision to empower young artists in a way that was not nearly as limiting or didactic as most official Christian music was already becoming. So Charlie made Warehouse Ministries and their Exit Records imprint his home. His first musical role there was as a member of the new wave-inflected band Vector, where he sang some lead but mostly backing vocals and played keys on their amazing 1983 debut Mannequin Virtue. But in 1984, Charlie released his solo debut, a spirited blend of pop, R&B, club beats, alternative attitude, and borderline funk. With Vector's Jimmy Abegg and Steve Griffith, the 77's Mike Rowe, a slew of horn players, percussionist Bongo Bob Smith, and others, Charlie crafted an album that managed to sound a bit like world music, but somehow still like what we were hearing on college radio and MTV. It was sophisticated and musical, and yet hooky and accessible. And the lyrics. I was 14 when I got this thing, and I loved that finally there was some music from a faith perspective that made me wonder. Close your eyes, rest a while. Let the noise of life surround you. Friends in the front room stereo. Hear your heart beats. 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 You read some book. Lost in Translation has so many layers of sound I could listen over and over and not tire of it. And that fade out was so frustrating. That had to be Mike Rowe on that guitar part and it sounded like they had just found a new song right there as the faders went south. Is that a rockabilly riff? That has to be Mike Rowe again. This human condition in front of my face. 
and drum machines when they were programmed right were so cool back in 1984 and the way bongo bob smith programs them they sound pretty amazing on this record often layered alongside live acoustic drums till you caught my eye has that killer arpeggiated synth and drum machine with the spiraling tension that resolves into the pre-chorus and then an almost sting-like chorus this was something I could very easily play for my friends that liked Simple Minds and Tears for Fears. You didn't have to apologize for Lie Down in the Grass. It was an album that deserved a much larger audience than it ever received. The folks at Exit, the label run by the church, had envisioned it as more of a mainstream label than a Christian market one. Alas, although Charlie got much more respect in California than most artists, his fan base mostly came from the fringes of the Christian scene, at first focused on alternative events like Cornerstone, actually. Father was a teacher of harmony, plays the horn like Mr. Beinbeck, looking for his nod, seeking out his favor. So there's a taste of 1984's Lie Down in the Grass, a bit of life-changing musical genius from Charlie Peacock and a whole lot of his talented friends just 35 years ago or so. hard to believe that it's been 10 years since the Tour's last album, Consolers of the Lonely, was released. Maybe that's because Jack White stays so busy. This decade has seen four solo projects by Jack and three by his other band, The Dead Weather, several other projects that he produced, as well as, of course, overseeing Third Man Records and opening a vinyl pressing plant in Detroit. Now don't get me wrong, Jack's solo work has been mostly on point and fascinating, always leaning hard on talented friends. But the Tours, a real band, I think is his strongest overall group. And Help Us Stranger is an excellent addition to that band's lean catalog. If you call me, I'll come running. You can call me anytime. And these 16 strings were strumming. They will back up every line. There's a motive. The Rock on Tours are Jack White, songwriter and guitarist Brendan Benson, bassist Jack Lawrence, and drummer Patrick Keeler. The songwriting duties fall mostly to White and Benson, and something really interesting happens when these two work together. Jack is still Jack, with his acid blue tint, squawking noises and yelps, and his larger-than-life persona making itself heard here and there. And Brendan's sweetness and sense of melody is never vanquished. But the chemistry between the two is really something else. There's a balance that happens, and the result is classic rock perfection. Epic riffs, singable melodies, and really interesting lyrics.
White has been delving into spiritually interesting ideas in his lyrics for a long time. He has spoken several times about his Catholic background and has allowed that to inform his work. But there's some extra soul going on here on Help Me Stranger, an album that certainly doesn't feel like a concept project, but definitely leans hard into some ideas that parable readers should find interesting. One of the central lines comes from the Benson Penn song, Only Child, that Jack even calls out on the track-by-track -track commentary as his favorite lyric on the record. Only child, the prodigal son Has come back home again to get his laundry done Only child, the prodigal son has come back home to get his laundry done. The title track, of course, could be very easy to place in a film about the Good Samaritan. And the album closes with Thoughts and Prayers, a song that I expected to be a somewhat sarcastic commentary on the cliche, but turns out to be quite sincere. I wrote a letter down to you Like I'm Sullivan Balloon It's a recipe for blue Like it's 1862 There are certainly some decidedly worldly moments here, like their cover of Donovan's Hey Jip, Dig the Slowness, but even the blistering bravado moments like Don't Bother Me or What's Yours Is Mine, talk about an interesting lyric, have some interesting meaning hovering in the background thanks to the context of the overall project. All told, Help Us Stranger is a fantastic rock record, definitely one of the strongest of the year. You'll be hearing tracks from this and any remixes we find on the Spotify mixtapes for a good long time to come. The vinyl is especially amazing on this one too. So, back to that early morning conversation with Charlie at Cornerstone 89. We sat by the pool at about four in the morning, and I told him that I was afraid I had ruined my chances at having anyone take my music seriously, and that I would always be known as the true tunes guy. I also blathered a bit about this girl that I was in love with, that I had told how I felt, but she had been with the wrong guy for a long time, and I was afraid she was going to go stay with him. My mind was awash in teen angst. I was a mess. Charlie told me something, though, that stuck with me and really became a guiding ethic in my life. Just be faithful, he said. Walk through the doors God opens for you and do your best to serve whoever you find there. Don't worry about this stuff behind the other doors. I'll tell you what, that made a huge difference. It was full speed ahead for me. And yes, my music never caught up to what I was doing with True Tunes. But when I saw the impact we were having with the store and the magazine and later the concert venue and what it all meant to people, I started to see what Charlie meant. I have found myself giving that same advice to young people countless times over the years. Most of us start off on our journey with an idea of what we want to do, and maybe a concept of what it will mean to be successful. But then things go differently than we expected. Sometimes God's version of success, His plan for us, might feel like a failure compared to what we had in mind. The problem is just our perspective. If we focus on being faithful as we walk through the doors God opens for us, and serving whoever we find there, it's amazing what can happen. Oh, and Charlie asked me to come to his merch booth the next day. I guess it would be later that day. He said he had something for me. I did, and it was a vinyl copy of that early record. We called it the Lawnmower EP back then. He had found it in his garage and knew I'd appreciate it. I was so honored that he had thought of me. Then, right as I was standing there in the middle of the crowd looking at this record, I felt a couple of hands slip up around my eyes from behind. A girl. The girl slipped up and whispered in my ear that she loved me. Right there in the middle of the madness, Charlie was standing there watching the whole thing, smiling. Michelle and I got married less than a year later. You never know which doors God is going to open. Okay, I'm coming down off the soapbox.
That's going to do it for episode one of the True Tunes podcast. Once again, I want to thank my co-producer and editor, Bruce Brown. Bruce has been a friend, advocate, and mentor to me for a long, long time. His background in this community is rich, and I am so honored that someone of his skill and talent would value this project enough to help make it sound so good. And of course, my deepest thanks to Charlie Peacock for his generosity of time and spirit and for so much more. Our theme song is an exclusive mix of the new version of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul. Thank you, gentlemen. Side B of the Jukebox featured the Rack on Tours with a special mix of Old Enough, as well as Help Me Stranger, What's Yours Is Mine, Only Child, and Thoughts and Prayers from their amazing new album, Help Us Stranger. And all the rest of today's music was from our special guest, Charlie Peacock. The Jukebox featured several tracks from Lie Down in the Grass and Running from the Light, one of Charlie's vocal contributions to the Vector debut, Mannequin Virtue. All the rest of the music was from Charlie's ever-growing catalog of instrumental jazz compositions. If you've never explored that aspect of Charlie's music, be sure to examine albums such as Love Press Excurio, Lemonade, and When Light Flashes, Help Is On The Way. As always, everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions and in context. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. If you like what you hear, please tell people about it, post reviews, make comments, rate us, especially on iTunes. But above all that, if you know someone who you think would be interested in this kind of conversation, please let them know that we'd love to have them along for the ride. And make sure to subscribe to the email list at truetunes.com. Until next time, this is JJT saying stay tuned and stay true.